This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll start out by pointing out that among mammals and indeed many animals in general, uh, males are often larger and more aggressive than females. And this is because there's often a very great difference in reproductive potential between females and males. If you take these female red deer, they, each female invests in, first, in each offspring a lot. She gestates, she is pregnant, and then she lactates. And she can only produce a limited number of uh, offspring over her lifetime. But the successful red deer male can mate with one male and then move on immediately and mate with another. And so this sets up competition between males, intense competition to be the successful male. And as Darwin pointed out, this competition led to uh, the evolution of antlers, uh, weapons, large size, and importantly, aggressive behavior. So often males compete singly in this competition, but there are species where males group together to compete with other groups of males. And so I'll be talking about that today in such cooperation among males in competition in these two species, lions and chimpanzees. So I'll start with lions, and uh, the Serengeti lions have been studied in Tanzania have been studied for the last uh, since the 1960s. I worked on this study for 12 years, and Craig Packer is still continuing it. The lions in the Serengeti uh, that have been studied live along the the borders of the uh, woodlands and onto the plains. And I'll be talking here about a study by Anna Mosser and Craig Packer where they looked at 38 years of data on 46 prides in this area to look at group um, territoriality. So lions live in permanent social groups, prides, and the core of the pride is the adult females, about uh, about four, five adult females and their offspring. And at any one time, there is a coalition of adult males resident in the pride, but these have come from elsewhere and they're generally there only for a year or a few years before they are ousted or move on. Females are territorial. They defend their group territory by roaring, by patrolling, and uh, by attacking um, intruders. And they have even been known, there's some evidence that they have sometimes killed cubs from females of other prides and even adult females in other prides. So they're fiercely territorial. And it's clear from the studies of uh, these Serengeti lions that larger prides do better. When they have more females, they're able to supplant small prides. And this is illustrated here in this slide where we have three prides which are contesting river confluence, which is a particularly good spot in the Serengeti. I mean, river confluences have, tend to attract the most prey animals. So here we have three prides, the pink one with nine females, the blue one with two females, and the green one with average of 1.6 females in 1991 and 92. And you can see that by 93, the green pride had gone extinct. The blue pride had been pushed out from the contested area, and the largest pride had taken over this river confluence. So where do males fit into this picture? All males 
leave the natal, their natal pride, the pride where they were born, before breeding. This is probably to avoid inbreeding. And they leave with their male peers. So they c- keep very strong bonds with their pride mates. And then they try to take over another pride. There's competition between groups of males to take over another pride. And number, the larger uh, group of males generally wins in such a competition. During the takeover, males fight and evict all the resident males and the sub-adults, and they kill the cubs. Uh, this Here you can see a young male with a newly killed cub in his mouth. Killing the cubs brings the females into reproductive conditions sooner. So there's conflict at first with the females in the pride. But once the males have settled and taken over the pride, they breed with the females, and then their interests are aligned with the resident females. And the Males assist the females in patrolling and defending the pride territory. So in this study, it's clear that um, female reproductive success on the top graph, uh, the left, uh, the x-axis, is the um, female reproductive success depending on number of adult male neighbors. So in other words, when density is high and pride is surrounded by a lot of others, females are not producing as many cubs as when density is low. And then the bottom graph shows um, the interesting finding that the number of male neighbors, so that's uh, along the bottom axis, as as the number of male neighbors increases, the Monthly, that the rate of female mortality and wounding, mortality in the dark bars, wounding in the light bars, increases. So what seems to be happening here is that males um, are actually... You might think that males would view females in neighbouring prides as potential future mates, but in fact what seems to be happening is they are supporting their current females uh, and they are actually uh, even killing females in in adjacent prides. Presumably this helps to defend the territory and increase the reproductive success of their current females and their offspring. So then to sum up with uh, with lions, uh, we have females as the core of the group. Females are territorial, but males also band together and um, compete to take over prides, but then they cooperate with other males in the group and the females to defend the group territory. So now we move on to chimpanzees. Of course, chimpanzees are one of our two closest living relatives, and they uh, resemble many human societies, but only a handful of other mammals in that males are philopatric. Males stay in the group they were born all their lives. Um, Chimpanzees live in permanent social groups called communities. So the males stay there with their kin, uh, and females disperse before breeding. And especially in East African chimps, females, as shown by these smaller circles, uh, tend to spend a lot of time in smaller core areas within the community range. They're less social than the males are, but the males together patrol the community range, and they uh, defend it against neighboring communities. So here I'm going to show you that the males patrol the periphery of their range. If they meet a group or hear a group of roughly the same size, they call back and forth and display and then generally um, withdraw back into their territories. But sometimes they make 
longer journeys into the, uh, the territory of a neighboring community. They're very stealthy and quiet and spend a lot of time gazing into the territory of the next community. And you can see there are four males here, no females. They walk incredibly stealthily. They try not to step on dead leaves. I once stepped on dead leaves when I was following a patrol like this. The male turned around and threatened me. These males found a young adolescent male from the next community. And then they mounted a very severe and terrible attack on him and left him probably mortally wounded. So we see males killing neighbors. They kill adult males, they kill infants, um, they occasionally kill even adult females. So what's all this killing about? What advantage do they get from killing? This, is, uh, this shows a study by colleagues, um, John Mitani, David Watts, and Sylvia Amsler, of a very large community, the Ngoga community in Uganda, in Kibali Forest. And the gray areas show the community range over from 1999 to 2008. And the black lines show uh, patrols by males in this, this uh, community over that period. And then on the right, you see... Um, black circles which show where individuals were killed. And so over this nine-year period, 21 individuals of other communities were killed by these males. These included infants, males, and one adult female. And what you can see is that a lot of the killing was up in the north um, east of the community range. And in 2009, the community range expanded into that area. So by killing, they apparently were able to expand their range. Now, we don't know, it seems likely that perhaps this was the, there were more males in this community than the adjacent communities. We don't know, because usually people who study chimps only study one community. But at Gombe National Park, we've been able to study two communities at once and actually look at the importance of relative number of males on uh, use of shared range or overlapping range. So in 1994... Um, we had two communities, Mitumba and Kasakela, five males in the Mitumba community, 11 in the Kasakela community. By 2004, the Mitumba community was down to three males. They actually went down to three, two after that. Uh, the Kasakela community just lost one. So we were able to look at how they used the contested area, which was, is the area of overlap uh, by the two communities. Um, and we, could, we found that as you might expect, when the Mitumba males were least outnumbered by the Kasakela males, they spent more time in that contested area. And conversely, with the Kasakela males, as they outnumbered the Mitumba males at greater odds, then they used that community, that disputed area more. So number of males matters. So what is all this about? What, what are the advantages of territoriality and, and defending a group territory? There are various possibilities. Perhaps they are gaining access to food resources which um, improve the, the lives of both them and their females and the, their offspring. Or they might, be, uh, they might immediately be able to capture more adult females. 
We were able to look at the effect of territorial expansion in Gombe because the main Kasakaya community fluctuated in range over an 18-year period, from very small in 1981 to much larger in 1997. So we were able to look at the effect of this territorial expansion on a number of measures. First of all, we were during this time at, at Gombe, they were weighing the chimps regularly. Uh, as you can see, you put a banana in the tin and the top of the, spring, uh, the rope. And after taking a number of factors that influence body weight into account, we find that when the range size is largest, the chimps tend to be on average heavier than they are when the range size is small. So this, is, this suggests indeed that they are gaining access to more food resources by expanding the territory. We also looked at female reproductive rates. Uh, this graph shows interbirth interval for particular females when the community range is a different size. And you can see that uh, when the community range is small, the interbirth intervals are longer than when the community range is large. So, in other words, females are able to reproduce more quickly when the community range is large, and presumably this has to do with them being able to get more food and produce uh, and rear their young more quickly. We didn't find that uh, males immediately captured more females by increasing their range size. And there's no relationship between number of adult females and community range size. However, over the next two decades, uh, the community, Cascade community range stayed large and eventually they gained more females as young immigrant females settled into their territory. But, but community expansion doesn't immediately result in capture of adult females. Well, over different studies of chimps, um, there are very great differences in rates of killing and, of course, uh, factors influencing into community violence or male violence and killing of great interest to this symposium. So my colleague Mike Wilson recently has uh, polled all of the people studying chimps across Africa, um, 18 different chimp sites shown here, or chimp communities by the black circles, and also four bonobo communities. And he has compiled... Uh, in this collaborative study, rates of killing in these different communities. And they do, killing happens in almost all of the chimp communities, but not the bonobo communities. And one question was uh, it, that there are people who suggest that ch uh, killing in chimps is induced by human disturbance, by humans feeding them, or by uh, fragmentation of habitat because of human activities. But we did not find that, um, that killing rates were correlated with human disturbance. But we did find that rates of killing increase with the number of adult males in the community. And, of course, the, the very large uh, the point up at the top there is the Ngogo community. And also, killing rates were higher when population density was higher, very much as, we, as was found in the lions. Well, I've talked about violence and killing, but when we look at the males within groups in both these species, they form very strong friendly bonds. And uh, the male lions stay for life with their partners and they, um, they spend hours in friendly contact. Ch male chimps 
do compete with other males within the group for females, but they also spend hours in friendly contact and form very strong bonds which last for many years. These are often but not always kin. So to sum up then, intergroup conflict is a major context of male aggression. In lions, females of the Philopatric sect sex, they are kin and they defend the territory, but they are aided by groups of males who, who also cooperate um, in this intercommunity conflict. In chimpanzees, uh, like many human societies, males are philopatric and they cooperate to defend the group territory. And we don't really see females very involved in the territorial behaviour. Territories protect females and young and their food food resources in both these species. Lethal conflict occurs more often at high densities, but males have strong within-group social bonds. And given our close phylogenetic relationship with chimpanzees, it seems likely that the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees shared these characteristics and that male cooperation for between-group violence has deep evolutionary roots. So the talk comes in four parts, and the major emphasis will be on hormonal mechanisms and neural mechanisms underlying male typical aggression. And the problem is pretty obvious. Uh, Daly and Wilson are Canadian psychologists, and they looked among a bunch of North American cities, and they found that when they plotted a lifetime incidence of murders by males of unrelated males, that the curve over the lifetime very closely matched uh, the levels of testosterone in the blood. And th their uh, claim was that it was universal in the sense that their findings were not limited to North American cities. They studied many other parts of the planet as well. Since in laboratory animals, we know that uh, testosterone is required for the initiation of male typical aggression, we obviously want to know what the, what the hormonal mechanisms are. And they split into two parts. One would be androgen-dependent transcription in neurons. That would be gene expression in neurons. And the other would be rapid membrane-initiated mechanisms that don't necessarily require transcription. And the way the first one works is as follows. That androgen receptors, which are proteins, AR, androgen receptors, if and only if they are bound by testosterone, come from the cytoplasm of the neuron into the nucleus and they bind to a specific nucleotide sequence on DNA, which, if they're surrounded by other proteins called coactivators, will lead to androgen-dependent, testosterone-dependent gene expression in neurons. And we know that that kind of gene expression is required for the initiation of male aggression uh, in laboratory animals. And one example would be the testosterone-dependent uh, uh, expression of vasopressin in certain hypothalamic neurons. But not all of aggressive behavior um, uh, in the, uh, as caused by neurons depends upon gene expression. And in a couple of slides, I'll show some data that illustrate two principles of hormone actions in the brain. The first is that sometimes the final hormone product acting in a neuron is not the hormone that you injected or applied otherwise. It's actually a metabolite of that hormone. And the second thing is, as I just said, not all hormonal actions in the brain involve altered gene transcription. 
These two types of mechanisms have been shown in other systems that we've worked on to cooperate with each other, uh, but that kind of cooperation has not been shown yet for aggressive behavior. So first, the chemistry. When you inject testosterone uh, into an animal, it can, it can act as testosterone chemically. Here are the four rings that are typical of a steroid, the A ring, the B ring, the C ring, the D ring. And it can be metabolized into dihydrotestosterone or into estradiol. And with respect to aggressive behavior, amazingly enough, some of the actions of testosterone in the brain on, on aggressive behavior are actually due to its conversion to estradiol. And here's one proof of that. If you look at this complicated slide and just concentrate on the left side, you'll see that 15 minutes of estradiol treatment in the hands of uh, Brian Trainer, who's now at uh, UC uh, Davis, 15 minutes of estradiol exposure uh, it would be sufficient to increase aggressive behavior uh, uh, compared to control. And by the way, a side point of that study is that this is particularly effective if the animals have only 10 uh, hours of light per day and 14 hours of dark compared to the other way around, 14, 14 of light, 10 of, 10 of dark. So the action of estradiol as a testosterone metabolite depends upon the circadian uh, rhythm. And, it, and that, effect, that effect happens too quickly uh, to be involved with uh, new gene expression. The way steroids are acting in the brain, uh, when they're acting uh, membrane-initiated and with very rapid actions, is that they're acting very much like neuropeptides. That is, the steroid comes to the nerve cell membrane, it binds to a receptor, and then there's a series of what we call signal transduction steps, very rapid signal transduction steps, which can lead to phosphorylation of ion channels in the neuron and to a change in electrical activity very rapidly, rapid enough to account for that uh, effect that I showed on the previous slide. And then also there are later uh, consequences of this signal transduction path, set of pathways such that there can eventually be new gene transcription, which would be slow actions of hormones in the brain. What about neural mechanisms independent of whether they're testosterone dependent or not? The two examples that I'll show today are major neurochemical systems, both of which regulate aggression by decreasing aggression. And here's some raw data. <clears throat> what Cervantes did in the laboratory of uh, Ivan Delvio at the University of Texas is to uh, measure aggressive behavior in a very large number of male hamsters and to choose extremes such that he had a low aggressive group and a high aggressive group. Then, among those animals, he either gave vehicle or he gave a low dose or a high dose of a serotonin receptor agonist, which is abbreviated DPAT. And then he said, in the tests following the vehicle or the drug, did the animal show a high level of aggression, five, four, three, or did they show a low level of aggression, zero aggressive bouts? And he found that in the high aggressive group, but not in the low aggressive group, a higher dose of the drug, the serotonin active drug, would, uh, would essentially prevent aggression. There'd be no aggression at all. This is in hamsters. Now the work of Hussein and Adele in Alan Siegel's laboratory at, uh, at Rutgers, um, doing a much different kind of experimental paradigm. In this case, they're, they're using cats, and they're electrically stimulating the medial hypothalamus of these cats, such that the cats will show a vicious attack. They're hissing, they're clawing, they're biting. And the major um, comparison for today's purpose would be to compare 
of the squares with the triangles. The squares is where they're given the vehicle, and the triangles is where they're given that same uh, serotonin receptor agonist, DPAT. And you'll see that the latency to uh, uh, aggressive attack, this, uh, this hissing, what do they call it, defensive rage, defensive rage, the latency to show it is significantly elevated when you give the serotonin agonist. Adero, working in the lab of Cornelius Gross at a European molecular biology laboratory, worked with mice. And he genetically engineered these mice so that they would show high levels of serotonin receptor 1A expression, but only in serotonin neurons, in the so-called RAFE neurons of the midbrain. And the effect of doing that is to decrease serotonergic neuronal activity. By genetically engineering the mice in this way, he effectively damped down uh, serotonin activity in the brain. And looking at the top half of the slide, the, the percentage of uh, animal showing attack went up uh, in, the, in the genetically modified animals. The numbers of attacks went up. The latency to attack went down. And the, the black bars show more aggression than the light bars. So in three different species with three different methodologies, uh, hamsters, uh, cats, and mice, we see that higher serotonergic activity in the brain is correlated with and, in fact, causes less aggression. I'd like to switch now to a much different neurochemical system. Nitric oxide, NO, is a very unusual uh, neurotransmitter in that it's a gas. And what Randy Nelson did, he's chief of uh, neuroscience at uh, Ohio State University, is to engineer mice such that the enzyme that causes the, the uh, synthesis of nitric oxide, namely neuronal nitric oxide synthase, was simply absent. The minus minus means that the gene is not being expressed at all. In the absence of nitric oxide, because it can't be synthesized, the latency to aggressive attack is significantly reduced. The number of attacks and proportion of total attacks uh, is increased. And when you give a drug which inhibits nitric oxide activity, uh, the amount of attacking goes down significantly. So again, uh, nitric oxide signaling across the brain uh, reduces aggression. Returning to testosterone, what is testosterone doing in the brain such that uh, uh, aggression is increased? To make it very simple, testosterone turns on neurons that activate aggressive behavior and it inhibits neurons that inhibit aggressive behavior. So perfect examples of neurons that activate aggressive behavior would be vasopressin neurons from the work of uh, Heert de Vries at Emory University uh, in, in a group called the bed, uh, a neuronal group called the bed nucleus of the tria terminalis. And uh, testosterone inhibits electrical activity in, these in a forebrain group called the septum, which in turn inhibits aggressive behavior. And so these two things working in parallel massively facilitate the initiation of aggressive behavior, not necessarily the maintenance, but the initiation of aggressive behavior in laboratory animals. I'd like to finish up by giving a perspective uh, on these raw data. Uh, and since uh, we're, we're in a symposium about male violence, I'd like to talk about epigenetic contributions to the multiplicity of gender roles. In a sketch, uh, my former administrative assistant was an artist, uh, we picture the lifetime as skiing down the mountain. And since we're in La Jolla, this is going to have to be a California baby. And the old view, as we go through the early part of life, would be that 150 years ago, you had only two choices. You had a strongly masculine gender role or a strongly feminine gender role. 
But a more modern view is the following. Same California baby, or shall we say the great-granddaughter and the great-grandson, with the new view, uh, time uh, represented as going down the mountain, and we see that on the Y chromosome we have the SRY gene, which itself is a compound of two uh, separate genes, following SRY expression to determine the testis, uh, the testes uh, and testis development. You have the X chromosome inactivation, which is an extremely complex process. It's not a random process, and it's not the same from individual to individual. Uh, we have genetic imprinting, in which an individual gene on an autosome may only express the parental contribution to that gene, or it may only express the, the uh, allele that came from the mother, the paternal imprinting or maternal imprinting. We have a single uh, phrase called chromatin chemistry, which hides incredible complexity, uh, DNA methylation, uh, histone modification, and non-coding RNA. Uh, we have not only testosterone uh, 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 action in the central nervous system, but also another hormone called anti-Mullerian hormone. And then as the baby goes through life, there are going to be certain critical periods where the environmental, is, the environmental uh, contribution is significant, the neonatal period and the pubertal period. And finally, we have the environment during pu uh, puberal years. If you're in a very small town, uh, the question might be, who's cute? And uh, I'm told that if you sign on to Facebook now and you're asked about your gender role, uh, you have more than 50 choices. And what I'm trying to say is that uh, these steps, the, the complexities of X chromosome inactivation, genetic imprinting, and chromatin chemistry, which is one of the hot areas of modern biochemistry, we have more than enough complexity to account for the range of gender roles uh, current in modern society. The final slide takes a perspective uh, which was published in, 19, in 2001 by James Gilligan. Uh, when James Gilligan was a professor at Harvard, he was also uh, the chief psychiatrist of the Massachusetts prison system. And his book says that we should try to prevent violence by young men as a manifestation, by, by treating it as a manifestation of a public health problem, using the steps that you would treat, that you would use if you were trying to prevent diphtheria or, or typhoid. And that step one should be primary prevention. You should institute tactics that are aimed at transforming social institutions and practices that foster violence. And that would be that you're going to have excellent prenatal care, excellent nurturing uh, uh, environment in the neonatal period, and so forth. Secondary prevention is to apply tactics, uh, to get, use tactics that apply to individuals at risk. You already know by virtue of the person's environment or the person's uh, neonatal, neonatal or pre-adolescent um, pre behavior that the kid is at risk, probably a boy. And then tertiary prevention would be tactics that apply to adolescents who already have exhibited violent behavior that's probably going to be some combination of drug therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. So I, uh, this final slide could be given an alternate title, and it would be easy to say, hard to do. Thank you. How can we understand humans as a species? Uh, we certainly vary in all sorts of ways in relationship to ecological, social, cultural pressures. But uh, at the same time, I want to suggest that we have uh, a need, if we're going to understand uh, patterns of human violence, uh, to take uh, a kind of a deep evolutionary look at, at 
something to do with averages. So now, the, the way that um, for hundreds of years, actually, people have thought about the essential nature of humans with regard to violence is in uh, one of two, which are represented here by these icons. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, who represents the selfish, violent uh, part of humans, uh, the need for a leviathan, a government or a king to control the violence. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, represents the notion that people are inherently cooperative, uh, gentle temperaments, and nonviolent. And if you take one view, then uh, it tends to exclude the other. So if you are a follower of Rousseau, you say, well, basically humans are uh, just utterly nice people, and sometimes they go nuts when an evil ideology or uh, some other kind of disturbance uh, comes in to break the peace. And, uh, or you can take a Hobbesian view and say, uh, we have to work incredibly hard to be able to get rid of the socialization for aggression and eventually make ourselves uh, more peaceful. Well, uh, of course, a resolution of this is what uh, Chris Boehm, among others, uh, suggested 15 years ago, which is that the answer is uh, both of these things are true. But in that case, how can both things be true? Because they seem to be opposites. So that's what I want to address. And the mechanism I want to uh, bring in here is the notion that we should be paying more attention than we have to the possibility that uh, humans have been subject to two different kinds of selective pressure with regard to two different kinds of aggression. So one of them is, uh, I'll call it proactive, predatory, premeditated aggression. Uh, the aggression that results from men sitting around a campfire saying to themselves, you know, those bastards who live five miles away, they really deserve us to go and raid them. And the other, the reactive, uh, impulsive, explosive, um, uh, is, uh, is what happens when uh, two men in a bar, uh, after too much drink, uh, one of them says, your mother's ugly, and the other one says, no, you know, you live in a farmyard with your daughter. And uh, all of a sudden, they go out and have a fight on the uh, parking lot, which is in fact the commonest form of American murder, uh, in the parking lot outside the bar. So I want to suggest that these two are separable and usefully separable. And I understand that in doing this, I'm bound to be very simplistic. Uh, it is certainly the case that any individual has a propensity for both of these, and any individual action can involve both of these forms. But nevertheless, people all over the map have found it useful to make a distinction here. So developmental psychologists find it useful to distinguish children according to their propensity for reactive or proactive aggression. And uh, psychiatrists the same with adults. In fact, it's becoming uh, an important diagnostic tool in thinking about domestic abuse. There are psychopathologies where you have um, uh, explosive disorders on the one hand, uh, fitting the reactive, and uh, psychopathy, which is more associated with uh, proactive aggression. You've got experimental models of uh, types uh, using the same species that uh, Donald Pfaff spoke about uh, recently. And, uh, and then you've got observational models that tell the story. I mean, these photographs are of, uh, on the one hand, uh, on the left, you've got baboons escalating a fight. That's uh, reactive aggression. On the other hand, you've got baboons doing what Anne Pusey was describing for lions, where uh, males will stalk infants, not out of uh, any kind of uh, uh, explosive reaction, but just deliberately to go and kill. Okay, so... Um, 
What we're talking about here are uh, these two different types, and um, I'm going to suggest they've been subject to different kinds of selection pressure. So I want to just emphasize the possibility that uh, there are different mechanisms, sufficiently different, that selection can act in different ways on them. Reactive aggression. You've got the trigger being some kind of upset. Somebody is in your face. You're highly aroused. The thing gets going quickly, and uh, the aim of the reactive aggression is to get rid of whatever it is that's in your face. And uh, the target is quite easily switched, so all of a sudden, you, know, you don't want to be near that guy in the bar who's having a row with the one who said his mother is ugly. On the other hand, you've got the proactive, where the, a desire is conceived for something, whether it's power or status or money or women or whatever it is. And with low arousal, you plan the thing, and the aim is to achieve a goal. It's not to just lash out at anyone who's there. Uh, You stay with your consistent target. One of the interesting features of these two different styles of aggression is that no drugs are known, I believe that is still correct, uh, that can interfere effectively with proactive aggression. Whereas with reactive aggression, you've got your SSRIs that can indeed, fitting with what uh, Donald Pfaff was saying earlier, uh, interfere with um, the uh, low serotonin problem. And uh, if we look at the animal models, we have evidence of uh, different uh, mechanisms in terms of uh, brain activation. So reactive aggression uh, is uh, activated through the mediobasal part of the hypothalamus, proactive by the lateral, and so on. Uh, there are particularly dramatic experiments by Adrian Rain and colleagues showing that um, low prefrontal cortex activity is associated with murdering in a reactive rage, uh, but not with um, uh, proactive murderers. So uh, if we can establish that these two kinds of aggression are different, then let's think about, first of all, chimpanzees. So intergroup violence in chimpanzees. The pattern of uh, intergroup violence is uh, that um, a a large group, uh, on average eight, according to the latest data, target a lone individual, a massive imbalance of power. Now, they target them by finding them as a result of going on a border patrol that we heard about and sometimes making what's called commando raids, making a deep penetration into a neighboring territory looking for opportunities to attack somebody. There is no provocation. There is no evidence that this is the result of a shortage of food or a shortage of females. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's more likely to happen when there is more food, if anything. Uh, at least that is the expectation, because that's when larger groups can uh, more easily be formed. They get very excited about the opportunity to, to make these kills, but they only do it when they are completely safe. In fact, a remarkable feature of these attacks is that... Uh, in killing an individual who is fighting for his life, none of them have yet been seen to be hurt badly out of, uh, what are we, 152 kills recorded uh, so far. So, of course, the killing is meant to be adaptive, uh, even though there's still a tweak of uh, of a worry about exactly how you solve the collective action problem of of getting everybody to be involved in that. But as we heard today, there are various kinds of benefits. The implication of uh, what I would like to call the imbalance of power hypothesis is that you've had in the past, in the EEA, the uh, Environment Evolutionary Adaptedness, uh, during the Paleolithic, you've had uh, extreme imbalances of power occurring commonly for chimpanzees, very low risk of death for the aggressors because you've got enough of them, eight to one, 
And under these conditions, natural selection is favouring a tendency for unprovoked killing because it tends to lead to success of the type we heard about this morning. So that's proactive aggression being directly favoured. Okay, now, here is a description of war in the Andaman Islands, uh, the uh, ultimate place for studying hunter-gatherers in many ways, because you've got an entire archipelago with no farmers there until very recently. And the whole art of fighting was said to be to come upon your enemies by surprise, kill one or two of them, and then retreat. The aim of the attacking party was to kill the men. How incredibly chimp-like is that? All right, so does that mean that we can apply the imbalance of power hypothesis to the Andamans, where we would say extreme imbalances of power occur commonly in the Paleolithic, a low risk of death for the aggressors, and natural selection favoring unprovoked killing among those people. That's the hypothesis that I, I want to put forward that we've had a, a parallel between humans and chimps. So I'm not using chimps as an evolutionary model, as a phylogenetic continuity. That's a different question. This is just a parallel example of the way life seems to work. So it, there's an, a challenge, there are various challenges, but I just want to just mention this one, which is that um, there's a lot of variation among hunters and gatherers, uh, and you will find people who draw attention to um, uh, the fact that many hunters and gatherers have peaceful relationships with their neighbours. If that's the case on a systematic basis, in ways that echo the conditions in the Paleolithic, then there would have been little opportunity for selection to favour proactive aggression. Well, I... To cut a long story short, I suggest that um, the cases where we have hunters and gatherers being frequently peaceful with their neighbours fall into two categories. One is where the neighbours are members of their own society. And so I totally acknowledge and accept that within societies, within the 500 or 1,000 people that typically make up a hunter-gatherer society, within that collection of, uh, of bands then typically you have lots of peaceful relationships among those bands. But what about between societies, between different ethno-linguistic groups, where it's not so easy to communicate because you're speaking different languages or, or different dialects? Well, I, I would like to, to draw attention to uh, this example of the central Inuit, uh, a peaceful society as listed. Their present attitude is well expressed in a speech. In olden times, we fought so that the blood ran over the ground. Now we fight with button blankets and other kinds of property. Life changes. Uh, these are people who uh, know how to respond to changed circumstance. I want to suggest that where we see peaceful relationships between neighbouring hunter-gatherer groups or hunter-gatherer groups with a neighbouring society of another type, such as uh, farmers then their non-violence is very sensible and strategic. But it doesn't tell us much about what it would have been like in the Paleolithic. So in order to do that, we need to think about where hunters and gatherers are neighboured by other hunters and gatherers of a different ethno-linguistic group, a different language. And that means we go to a world system. And if in the world systems we find the kind of conditions that would lead to proactive aggression, then we're on the right track. Well... There are not many nomadic hunter-gatherer world systems. People might quarrel with this particular selection of, of six, uh, maybe add one or two others, and maybe the Ache. Um, but uh, uh, this is what uh, Luke Luaki and I uh, did uh, work with, um, systems where the war is anarchic because there's nobody coming in and being able to intervene on behalf of either different society. They're totally independent. And uh, in those, we uh, looked at the various... 
kinds of um, behavioural that related to war. Um, and they all shoot on sight. Uh, and they all have ambushes and, and raids. Uh, in these systems where you have neighbouring hunters and gatherers of different ethno-linguistic groups, then uh, we found that war is extremely predictable. And the shooting on sight is kind of a startling one, but uh, you, know, you see these descriptions of some uh, uh, weak uh, Inupiaq man uh, having survived uh, some terrible accident at sea, struggling up onto a nice flow, seeing some people, and what do they do? Do they offer him a cup of tea? No, they kill him. That sort of thing suggests uh, to me that uh, this is very uh, systematic. As for the rates of killing, um, there is, of course, tremendous variation. Here are rates compiled by Lawrence Keeley uh, in his uh, 1996 book some time ago, combined with some estimates of chimpanzee rates of killing. The chimpanzees are very poor, will certainly uh, get better over the years. In fact, we could already get a little bit better than these ones. What we see is that there's a range of variation, because each of these bars represents a different human society, uh, wide variation, but, but a, a median that is uh, sort of in the same order of magnitude. That's what I want you to remember about, about this. So I want to suggest that, uh, yes, um, in hunters and gatherers living with other hunters and gatherers as neighbors, then uh, they may well have had the uh, kind of environment in which, like chimpanzees, it pays to kill your neighbors when you have the opportunity to do so safely. And that means that selection would favor proactive aggression. Well, what about reactive aggression? Here uh, we have a striking contrast, uh, because, as others have already mentioned, uh, in, uh, within societies you have very low rates of, um, uh, of fighting. Now, uh, let me just give one uh, example from my own um, experience. I, I study chimpanzees, and if you're out with chimpanzees, it's pretty rare not to see aggression uh, every week uh, that you're out all day. Uh, I spent uh, nine months uh, living with uh, laissez farmers and F.A. Uh, hunters in the Congo and uh, was really disappointed that, oh, gosh, it's so boring. You know, there are no fights. Um, but this is fairly typical. Uh, here is uh, a little bit of data from uh, the uh, chimpanzees um, in a couple of societies, a couple of populations, uh, looking at the rates of physical aggression involving males and females. And then on the right, you've got humans from a population uh, where it seemed that they were actually uh, having rather more fights than, than some. And what you see is two orders of magnitude difference, uh, somewhere between 150 and more than 500 to 1, depending on uh, exactly what uh, samples you're looking at. Humans fighting enormously less than, than chimpanzees. You've been a very good audience. Well done, not fighting. But then you're not chimpanzees. So I want to uh, draw attention to this big difference and put it in the framework of thinking about proactive and reactive aggression. Uh, so we've got a similar high frequency of intergroup killing to chimpanzees. They, we do it when it, we're safe. It's strategic. It's not automatic. So that's the good news about it's easy to tone it down in humans. Um, but it is proactive in the sense of seeking opportunities and planning the attack. And then we've got, on the other hand, a very low frequency of face-to-face -face fighting, which is risky. You get hurt when you do that. 
And so people uh, avoid confrontations, uh, but nevertheless, arguments happen, and alcohol makes that particularly bad. So we're different from chimpanzees. We've got a different uh, degree of uh, modulation of these two types of aggression. And then the question, of course, that's fascinating is, with reactive aggression, uh, what is it about humans that means that we have strongly downregulated it compared to what we can um, imagine for a chimpanzee-like ancestor, or at least compared to uh, probably the majority of primates? And we can look back in the past and get some fascinating correlations, maybe. Um, craniofacial feminization is an indication of reduced aggression. Uh, it's not uh, definite. We see increased craniofacial feminization uh, as we approach the, the modern era. And some people have suggested that that might be related to downregulated reactive aggression as we get more fem female in our males in particular. Various ideas have been suggested for where this comes from. I'm not going to get into them. There isn't time. But uh, just to say that people are starting to, to think about that. The prospect, I think, is exciting for being able to imagine understanding where the downregulation of reactive aggression comes from. The important point for the moment is the contrast in uh, humans in these two forms. And so what it means when we come back to our icons for the two different styles of aggression uh, is that um, selection has indeed favoured the kind of aggression represented by both of these. And what, of course, is exciting, as Josh Goldstein in his Winning the War on War and Steve Pinker in his Better Angels of Our Nature have drawn attention to, is the declining rates of violence, which all reflect the fact that uh, the peaceful, cooperative, downregulated reactive aggression uh, represented by Rousseau is able to have some effects on our proactive style. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.